Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Joel Setticase. And if you are just coming over from Dan Osborne's video that he did with Jeff and Steve, um, you guys are troopers. I can't believe it. I can't believe that you watched that whole video and are now coming over here. Um, but I'm glad that you are. I'm glad that you're with us. Uh, and tonight we're talking about a topic that I think is pretty relevant. I think it's actually a lot of fun to talk about because this is one of those topics where we as Christians get to really put our flag in the ground and really say, yeah, I believe all of it. <laughs> so tonight we're talking about the crazy stories in the Bible, the crazy stories in the Bible. So, um, Thanks for watching. I'm going to go ahead and get started here. And um, as always, as we go along, uh, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, go ahead and post them in the comments. I just watched, um, I, I caught the end of the video over at Park Community Church with those guys, and I was lighting up their comment section. Um, they didn't address any of the comments, probably because I was Johnny Come Lately and I just jumped in towards the end. Um, but but I do have a good reason for that. I actually wanted to watch the whole thing, but I was dealing with a roofer. Now, why would I be dealing with a roofer? I was dealing with a roofer because a couple of days ago, our shingles blew off our roof and filled up the space in between our house and the house next to us. And, uh, and then, of course, we got all this rain and snow the last couple of days. So our house has been getting... Uh, our house has been turning into a little uh, Chicago version of, uh, I guess you could say we've been turning into the Shedd Aquarium Northwest. And uh, I've got water coming in any any possible which way. So I was dealing with that roofer and um, hopefully we won't get any more water over the last 20, over the next 24 hours. Um, and that's, it's a crazy story because we just got everything fixed around here. We just, we got mold taken care of. We got the kids, the boys room redone, the girls room redone. Um, all of this through generous, incredible gifts of people who know how to do this kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, then of course we get a ton of water and that is a crazy story. It's like, what the heck, how could that even happen? But of course this is real life. And sometimes real life is kind of crazy. And that's really what I want to talk about tonight is I want to talk about some things that seem completely crazy, but are actually true. And, um, and, and actually the more you dig into them and the more you uncover the reasons for believing them, the more that you, the more you realize that you have a good reason for believing them. And I'm talking about the crazy stories in the Bible, or at least those stories in the Bible that seem like they're completely crazy. What are these stories? What are the stories in the Bible that seem crazy? Um, well, depending on where you are in history, that question answer that question in different ways because there are different things that seem crazy different people based on your preconceptions of what's crazy but in our day and age there are definitely certain understandings that we have about the world that when we open up our bible and we start flipping through and we we come to um you know one of these stories we our natural reaction is to say well wait a minute wait really i'm supposed to really believe that i mean okay I'm down with Jesus. I'm down with God. You know, 
walking with him daily, reading my Bible, but you want me to believe that that happened? So let's talk about some of these stories and let's, let's find out, is this a good objection? Is this a good objection to the Christian faith? The idea that there are straight up astonishing stories in the Bible that actually seem kind of crazy. All right. So I want to start by talking about the elephant in the room, uh, or should I say the ogre in the room? And the ogre, of course, that I'm talking about is America's most beloved ogre. Or maybe it's Scotland's most beloved ogre, Shrek. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Shrek I, or any of its sequels, you know that really the, the most fun character in Shrek is Donkey. He, Donkey's hilarious. Uh, he's a lot of fun. And um, he's played by Eddie Murphy, and he has some of the best one-liners. But if you ever stop to, to think about why is Donkey in the movie Shrek? Well, think about the premise of Shrek. The premise is Shrek lives in a fairy tale world. So Pinocchio is real. The gingerbread man is real. Snow White and the seven dwarfs are all real in the world of Shrek. But why is there a talking, a talking donkey? What fairy tale has a talking donkey in it? Does anybody know? If you know what fairy tale, what story has a talking donkey in it, uh, let me know. Go ahead. Answer in the questions, in the uh, comments. Um, so, okay, if you haven't figured it out by now, the story of the talking donkey comes from Numbers chapter 22. Numbers is a book in the Bible. It's a book in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And in this story, there's a man named Balaam who has a donkey. And Balaam is riding this donkey, and the long and short of it, and I'll spare you all the details, but the long and short of it is, is Balaam is riding this donkey in opposition to God and to God's people. He's going to go do something that is going to cause God's people to suffer. He's going to try to put a curse on God's people. And the donkey starts resisting Balaam, and, uh, and, and he won't go. And at one point, the donkey is actually... Um, leaning up against the wall and just doing everything that he can not to move forward another step. And Balaam is beating the donkey. He's kicking it. He's, he's trying to get it to go. What Balaam can't see though, is that there's an angel in front of the donkey that the donkey can see that Balaam can't see. And the donkey is terrified of this angel and won't move another step. And finally, the uh, numbers 22, 28 says this, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And then Balaam has a conversation with the donkey. He says, you've made a fool of me. If I had my sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And, and Balaam and the donkey have this conversation and you're reading this and you're going, what? Here I am, I'm reading this historical account of Balaam and this King Balak and the people of Israel and they're marching through the land and it seems like history and all of a sudden there's a story of a talking donkey in the middle of it. What do I do with this? Am I now just supposed to, was there an invisible dividing line where this turned from history to fantasy? Have we gone from an actual historical account to a fairy tale? Or is the whole thing a fairy tale? 
because there is no dividing line in the text. It, it all flows together seamlessly. So is there an invisible dividing line? Is the whole thing fairy tale or is the whole thing history? Are we supposed to view all of it as history? Well, clearly the people who made the movie Shrek, DreamWorks, whoever was choosing the characters decided that they didn't believe the story of Balaam and the donkey. And they wanted to give maybe a subtle jab at those who do believe that it's true. And uh, th what they did was they incorporated a talking donkey in the story of Shrek. And so now you've got Shrek with all these fantasy creatures. And one of the fantasy creatures is, of course, the talking donkey. And if anything, it actually makes the, uh, the Christian's job harder because now not only do we have that story in the Bible, but now we've got this movie Shrek that's been out for 20 years or whatever it is, where the talking donkey is one of the fantasy creatures. So it'd be a little bit like, you know, if My Little Ponies or, uh, or Cinderella was, were in the Bible. We accept these as fantasy creatures now because they're in pop culture. Now, if I were to find them in my Bible and I didn't know they were in there, I'd think, well, the Bible clearly is filled with fantastic fantasy creatures. What do we do with this as Christians? How do we handle the fact that the Bible has the story of Balaam's talking donkey in it? Should we actually believe this? Well, here's the thing. The story of Balaam's talking donkey is not even the, it's not the most fantastic story in the Bible. And it's not even the first story in the Bible with a talking animal. No, the first talking animal goes all the way back to the first couple chapters of Genesis, where you've got God creating Adam and Eve and has prohibited them. He's told them they can't eat from the garden and, uh, or from the garden, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right away, a talking snake comes and starts to try to convince Eve and to trick and deceive Eve into, into eating. So, um, and then can we even pause for a second and think about who's, who else is in that story? You've got Eve, who was created out of a rib of the first man, Adam, and then you've got Adam, who was created from the dust of the ground. I mean, are we really supposed to believe that the first man was made out of dirt, clay, and that the first woman was, was what, cloned from his side using... Uh, his rib or a piece of his flesh. Uh, what do we do with these stories? They seem so fantastic. They seem so crazy. And um, and then what else? So we've got a talking snake. We've got the first man and first woman being created from a lump of clay from a rib. We've got, what about this? Um, the entire earth was flooded and one family got into a boat and survived the flood by floating on top of the floodwaters. But before that happened, two of every kind of animal marched in, uh, in, in a line and entered into the ark all by themselves. And then there were some animals that were okay to eat. There were clean animals. And those animals, seven came. Are we just, I mean, they're arranging themselves in groups of seven, in groups of two, male and female. What do we do with this? Are we, animals don't behave this way. And so we look at the Bible and we say, if I want to become a Christian, do I really have to adopt a worldview where I think animals arrange themselves into single file and march themselves onto boats? Where I have to believe that donkeys can talk, I have to believe that snakes can talk, that people can rise up from the mud? Or, um, or what about this? The prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah was swallowed by a fish. And I know some translations say whale. Um, maybe it was a whale. Maybe it was just a giant sea creature. But it was 
a giant sea creature and it swallowed a man whole, didn't digest him, but vomited him up after three days onto the land. And all of this so that the man would complete the plan that God had for him. Well, what do we do with this? These stories seem fantastic. They seem like fairy tales. They seem totally crazy. And so that's what we're talking tonight is we're discussing why should we believe all of these crazy stories in the Bible? So thank you for joining me tonight. That's a nice little, uh, that's my, my intro. Uh, Larry, thanks for watching. Kathy, thanks for joining us. Uh, Greg, glad to have you back another week, my friend. Um, Mark, you must be a glutton for, uh, I was going to say punishment, but um, I think the last video was actually really good. So that wasn't punishment. This, this may seem like punishment because we're talking about all the crazy stuff, crazy seeming stuff in the Bible. But uh, Steve Rios is watching. Jerry Sellers, what's up, man? Uh, glad we can be part of your Monday routine. Um, Kim is watching. Kim, hope you're doing well. Kim, what are you up to these days anyway? Are you, I don't, I can't imagine you're still, are you still selling homes? Where are you at? I know, um, I think you moved down from Gemcraft quite a, a while ago, but um, Kim and I used to work together and she basically mentored me in the, the home, sell, home sales business and uh, was just an all around awesome person to work with. And Kim also had the hookup in our um, home development. There was a guy, Frank, who lived um, just off the, the subdivision. And Frank had a, um, a smoker and he would cook the most ridiculously good tasting fish and beef, pork. And he would bring it over to us in our sales center, in our sales trailer. And we would eat this wonderful stuff. Um, so Kim had that hook, hookup. And you're still selling homes. That's awesome. Very cool. And uh, yes, KJ Johnson, thanks for watching, man. Um, how's the move coming to Chicago? Hope that's going well. Are you here? Are you in Chicago? If so, what the heck, man? You haven't called me. I, I owe you uh, at least a coffee at the very least. And I got a, a cool new spot to show you about. Um, yes, Mark, great. You need something to fall asleep to. That's good. Hey, man, I'm glad. You know what? I'm glad I can do that for you. Just put your headphones in. Let, let my... Uh, my raspy voice just lull you to sleep, my friend. I'm, gl I'm glad I can glad I can do that for you. Um, we're talking about talking donkeys, though. That's that's a lot of fun. So if you're going to go to sleep, at least you'll have some some fun, uh, crazy dreams of of talking donkeys, talking snakes, and animals walking two by two. Now, all right. So these stories seem very far fetched to us, don't they? And they seem far fetched because of our modern sensibility. So we are good modernists, or maybe we're good postmodernists, where, you know, in, in modern, in modernity, we value science, we value evidence, we value reason. We've been shaped by the great thinkers of the enlightenment of the, the, the 16 and 17 and 1800s. And we don't even know it, but we, we do know that um, if someone's going to be declared guilty of a crime that there better be really good evidence beyond the shadow of reasonable doubt. And so as we're looking at scripture, we expect the same thing. We expect if I'm going to come to a verdict on whether or not a donkey talked, man, you better give me some good evidence. You better give me some solid evidence. And so these stories seem very far-fetched to us. And, and it can be very tempting for us to look back at the ancient world of the Bible and we think this. We go, well, okay. It was a different time. You know, they lived in a world where 
they really they didn't know they didn't have the enlightenment they didn't have rules of evidence they didn't know about science and so it seemed pretty par for the course for them to say yeah, a donkey can talk or a snake can talk or a man can rise up out of the, the dirt or yeah maybe maybe animals do just um march two by two and seven by seven into a great big boat and and it, it made sense for people to believe these things you know these are the days of the greek gods and the babylonian gods and and you know what even compared to those myths hey the bible's not so crazy so hey this was a less crazy myth but they were working their way through the world and and they came up with some fantastic stories to kind of explain things. All right, well, is that what's really going on here? As we read the Bible, are we just opening up a window to a world that doesn't exist anymore, a world where people had all these crazy beliefs that, you know, as good modernists and postmodernists, we we just, we know the world doesn't work that way anymore. But they didn't know any better. So, you know, it's okay. We can kind of chuckle at their naivety and and say, well, I'm glad I don't live in those days. Um, I'm glad I live in the in the world of reason and rationality and science. And uh, so is that what's going on? Is that the approach we should have when we look at these crazy stories of the Bible? Um, feel free to share your thoughts in the comments if you guys have any. Uh, Corey, thanks for joining. Uh, so cool that we can stay connected, man. I still remember those good old days back in the in the loop. Um, and of course, we've got several other connections through the Burke holders and stuff like that. Uh, Alex, thanks for watching. And um, interestingly, Alex, who's a lawyer, just popped on as I was talking about evidence and, and building a case and things like that. So um, must be providential, Alex, but I'm glad you're with us. Now, we've been shaped by the modernist, the Enlightenment worldview. And one of the greatest thinkers, or I should say the most prominent thinkers of the Enlightenment was a guy named David Hume. Now, if you're a fan of the show Lost, I'm not talking about David Hume, who was the Scottish uh, guy who could kind of travel through time in that show. He was named after David Hume. And um, the, 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 the real David Hume, the historical David Hume in the Enlightenment, he had this famous quote. And David Hume is responsible for this radical skepticism this methodological naturalism that characterizes so much of our inquiry, so much of our endeavors as we're doing science and we're doing, uh, we're, we're studying, looking for evidence and trying to come to conclusions based on proof and things like that. See, Hume was a radical skeptic. Basically what he said, well, he said, he said a number of things. For one, he actually challenged the idea of cause and effect. He actually said, for example, Imagine you've got pool balls and you're playing billiards, right? You're playing pool and you're, you shoot the cue ball at the, um, at whatever ball you're trying to knock into the pocket. And you see the cue ball knock into the three ball and the three ball then veers off to the left. Maybe you put a little English on it and it, it spins in and it hits the pocket. We look at that and we say, well, that's cause and effect. What Hume was so skeptical that Hume didn't even think that it made sense to talk about cause and effect in the way we naturally think about it. What he says is that all we know is that we see the cue ball moving forward, and then we see the three ball veering off to the left. But what we don't see is the cause and effect. We see something happening, and then we see something else happening, but we can't see the force. We don't see the energy. We don't, we don't know if the, if the one is actually causing the other. So this is just to give you a sense of how radically skeptical 
Hume is. And actually, Hume was so skeptical that um, it wasn't until Immanuel Kant came along, um, who was a, a Prussian philosopher, he had he developed a whole system of how we know things, of epistemology, really in response to David Hume. It wasn't entirely in response to Hume, but um, but Hume was formidable. Hume was influential. Hume influenced the way that the Western world thinks. And many of us have been influenced by David Hume, and we don't even know it. And here's a quote that David Hume had. All right, that's enough of the history lesson, the, the history of philosophy lesson. But here's what David Hume says. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, for example, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived or that the fact which he relates should have really happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other. And according to the superiority, which I discover, I pronounce my decision and always reject the greater miracle. If the falsehood of the testimony would be more miraculous than the event which he relates, then, and not till then, can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. So what does David Hume say? What he's essentially saying is this. Let's say you have a guy who claims to have risen from the dead, or, or, or maybe he claims that his friend has risen from the dead. Hume looks at that and he goes, okay, what's more likely? That this guy rose from the dead or that his, that his friend is lying? It would seem that it'd be a lesser miracle for someone to lie because, come on, people lie all the time. It would be a lesser miracle that someone was lying than it would be that someone got raised from the dead. And so Hume rules out the greater miracle. In, in every case, it would seem that's going to be the resurrection. Now, you apply that to um, stories in the Bible and you go, okay, what's more likely, that a donkey talked or that Moses was lying when he wrote that book? What's more likely? That, um, well, Moses wrote the story of Genesis as well. So you've got the flood in there. You've got Adam and Eve in there. You've got um, the snake in the Garden of Eden, you've got all that stuff. But the Bible is filled with these stories. The sun stood still for Joshua when he was fighting a battle. But the, the number one miracle in the Bible, the, the miracle par excellence, the miracle to define and redefine and contextualize all miracles is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting that Hume says, you know, if he uses the example of a man coming back to life. Why? Because we all know Hume was raised in a in Christendom, in a Christianized culture, even though he himself was a radical skeptic, he was he was swimming in the sea of of Christian thought, and so for him, he knew that the the defining miracle of all time was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and and so he he uses that as his ultimate example of miracle. Now, what's more likely that Jesus rose from the dead or that the the, uh, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were lying because all four of these authors have the resurrection in their narratives. So this objection, now what's going on in this objection? In Hume's objection, he says that he's going to rule out the, the greater miracle. Now there's a presupposition in what Hume says, and there's a presupposition in anyone who follows Hume and that presupposition is this, that the world acts a certain way. 
and we would expect it to act that way. It's always acted that way in the past. It acts that way in the present, and we would expect it to act and behave that way into the future. And so according to that pattern, there are some things that are more likely and some things that are less likely. There are some things that are within the norm and some things that are outside the norm. There are some things that ought to happen and other things that really shouldn't happen. Do you see how without that presupposition, without that assumption, Hume's statement makes no sense. Hume is assuming that it's less likely for a person to come back to life than it is for a person to lie. Now, why does Hume assume that? Probably because in his experience, he's never witnessed somebody come back to life. Totally fair. I haven't either. Now, I've seen a person's life be saved. I saw, actually, I saw my son's life um, be saved on on his hospital bed about a month ago. It was the scariest experience of my entire life. I talked about that in a previous video. And I talked about if God is good and God is all powerful, why are these things happening to my family? And I shared some of my story. But I've never seen a man come back from the dead after three days in the grave. And yet all four gospels and the rest of the New Testament are rife with that that account. They, they all point to that account. In fact, the Old Testament points to that as well. That there was a the, that there would be a, a messiah, a man who would come back to life. So so that really is the defining miracle. But according to Hume, it it shouldn't happen. And really, by his skepticism, there is no way to ever really believe because it's always more likely that someone would be lying than that a man would come back from the grave. So what do we do with that? Is Hume justified in that presupposition? Is modern man justified in saying it's always less likely for a person to come back from the dead than for a person to lie? Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. First, let's let's step into the Christian worldview for a minute. And let's ask ourselves, why, why should we believe these stories? Um, and actually, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I'm going to keep talking, but I'd like to, to know if you're still watching. It looks like we've got a, uh, several people watching at this point. Feel free, please share in the comments. If you believe these stories, the, the fantastical sounding stories in the Bible, why do you believe them? I really, I'm very curious. I want to know, why do you believe them? And is it because the Bible says so? Is it because of, you know, extra biblical evidence? But if you believe the stories in the Bible, why do you believe them? So please comment. I would like to read some of your comments and then uh, maybe we can have a little bit of a two-way dialogue. Um. But let me start with, with why I think it makes good sense to believe these, these stories. For one, because genre matters and because the integrity of a text matters. Remember we were talking earlier about how the story of Balaam and his donkey, there really is no dividing line between the rest of the account, which is historical, and the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. See, th the reason for that is because the story of Balaam and his donkey it's not, it's prose. It's historical prose. It's not poetry. It's not apocalyptic. It's not fantasy. There's no indication that Moses intends for it to be taken. Moses is the author. as it, That it intends to be taken as anything other than historical truth. And so if you read through the Bible and you, every time you get to something that seems crazy to you, if you draw if you take your pencil and draw a line there and, and draw a circle or a square around that portion of the text and you take your little pen knife and you cut that out and you throw that away, 
what's happening there? You're doing damage to the text because what you're saying is, is the intention of the author doesn't matter because good textual criticism says that the author meant for these stories to be taken seriously as prose, as history, as an actual account of something that happens. But what you're saying is that you know better than the author, that authorial intent doesn't matter, and that you are actually stronger and and um, basically that you know what happened more than the author knows. In fact, you know what the author meant more than the author knows, or at least what the author should have meant. But th this could be done, and it has been done throughout history, especially in the last 200 years with uh, high textual criticism and form criticism and all these different movements, the Jesus Seminar movement. But there are, there are folks who approach the Bible in this way. And what they, what they say is, we know better. And um, the problem with that is that, that that's not a more intelligent way of approaching the text. It's actually a less intelligent way. Because what it says is, you don't know anything about genre. You don't know anything about literature. You don't know anything about history. You don't know anything about textual criticism because you are applying, you're foregoing all the rules and just making up your own based on what seems right to you. It's taking this rich field of textual and criticism and biblical study, throwing it all out the window, 2,000 years, 3,500 3, years of reading the Bible, throwing it all out and saying, well, I, situated in this moment in history, I know best. It's solipsistic, it's arrogant, it's, it's uh, really juvenile. It's a juvenile way of approaching the text. And um, it, it's not more intelligent, it's less intelligent. Genre matters. The integrity of the text matters. I mean, just imagine if somebody were to, if you, if you texted your significant other, your wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, your kids, you texted them and, uh, and, and told them about your day. And then the next time you met up with them, um, you said, hey, you know, did you hear about this crazy thing that happened to me? somebody rear-ended rear my car and uh, the police officer came and they said it was my fault and they ended up writing me a citation. I mean, can you believe how crazy this was? And then the person you're speaking to, your significant other, your child, they start laughing. <laughs> good, good one. Yeah, that was funny. That was funny. Yeah, I deleted that, that portion of the text. What would your response be? Well, what do you mean you deleted it? Why would you delete that? Oh, because I knew, I knew that didn't really happen. Well, what do you mean that didn't really happen? I knew you were joking. Stuff like that doesn't happen. You know, that was too crazy. You know, I could tell that at that moment in your text, you were telling a fairy tale. You had moved into fairy tale land. And, um, you know, what would you think of that? You would think, and rightly so, you would think that they were doing damage to the integrity of your text. You were telling them something that actually happened. You weren't making a little poem. You were actually telling them something that happened. And their approach to your text was not more intelligent it was less intelligent. So genre matters and uh, the integrity of the text matters. All right, I got another one, but I, I want to read Larry's comment here. Okay. A, God's omnipotence. All right. So, ooh, good. I'm going to get to that. Yes. God's omnipotence because God can do whatever he wants, right? And why would we think that he can't? Saying things like that don't happen presupposes that God couldn't do those things. And, and so, when you take it, it becomes a circular argument. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. But if we say things like that don't happen, the Bible says they happen, therefore the Bible is wrong. The Bible says that God is real. Therefore, since the Bible is wrong, God must not be real. That's a circular argument. 
Things like that don't happen, so the Bible is false. The Bible says things like that happen, but we know things like that don't happen, so the Bible is false. It's completely circular. Okay, good. But if, of course, if God is real, God can do whatever he wants. God's omnipotent. Good, love it. B, I have the foundation to stand on to believe uniformity of nature because of the nature of God. Larry, dude, I love it. Absolutely. And I want to say it's like you knew what I was going to say before I'm saying it, but of course you do know what I'm going to say because we've had this conversation many times. Okay, C, logical mathematics. If the odds are one in one million, then one time it happens. Now, I'm not with you on that. You have to unpack that. C, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so because there are plenty of things that are possible, even probable, that don't happen. So you have to unpack that for me. I don't, I don't see that. Okay, D, if a naturalist, everything is time and chance, why couldn't the fantastic happen? Boom, totally on board with you on that. I'm going to get to that in just a second. So uh, Larry, I'm with you. Sounds great. I've got 27 minutes and 20 seconds left. So hopefully I can, I can uh, unpack all those points. Okay. Let me tell you the second reason. And this, I think is the, this, not, I think this is the best reason why we should believe the stories of the Bible. Okay. And that's this, because Jesus, who is the ultimate authority, believed them. The man who accomplished the greatest miracle that the Bible records believed that all the other miracles in the Bible actually happened. All these other crazy seeming stories actually happened. See, Jesus affirms all these stories that offend our modern sensibilities. For example, when we read the Gospels, which the Gospels, if, if you don't know, the Gospels are these four accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we read about is a Messiah whose life and ministry were deeply rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Torah, the writings, the prophets. Jesus, Jesus based his ministry and his life off of them. In fact, he viewed himself as the fulfillment of every promise made in the Old Testament. Now, that same Old Testament is where we're getting these outlandish, crazy stories. That's where the sun stood still. This is where the the um, the man and the woman rose from the dirt and from the rib. It's where the donkey talked. And yet Jesus affirms these stories. For example, uh, Matt Slick has a really good article. Matt Slick runs Christian Apologetics Research Ministries, also known as CARM. You can get to his website, CARM.org, but he has a great article about this. And it was very influential in, in me preparing for this for this video. So Matt Slick points out that Jesus believed that a giant fish swallowed Jonah. And we see this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He says, for just as Jonah was in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, is Jesus using a, liter a literary illusion simply for its sake in the way that we might talk about, you know, Moby Dick or Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn? Well, no. And here's why. Because Jesus not only refers to, when he refers to Jonah, he says that he himself will be like Jonah. Well, Jesus, the same worldview, the same story that accounts for Jesus saying this, also says that Jesus rose 
from the dead. So this is presented again within the genre of historical narrative. It's gospel. It's it's gospel truth. And there's a reason why we describe things as 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 gospel truth because the gospels are to be taken as truth. So Jesus believed that Jonah and the giant fish was history. Jesus also affirmed Noah and the flood, the, the worldwide global flood. It wasn't a local flood. He, he said that um, in Matthew 24, 37 and 38, Jesus says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then Jesus continues. And um, essentially, Jesus affirms carte blanche, the Genesis account of Noah. And basically, people were, were living this, this way, and then it all ceased. It stopped. And Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be the same kind of thing. Now, there was a local coming of Jesus. Um, that was in AD 70, when, when uh, it wasn't the physical return of Jesus, but it was judgment on apostate Israel, apostate Jerusalem. But the Son of Man is going to come back. And when he does, Jesus Jesus taught that it would be the consummation. It would be the end of all things. And so this is a global phenomenon. So Jesus is, is pairing the global flood of, of Noah with the global flood of, um, or sorry, with the global event that will be his second coming. By the way, pop quiz, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? You can add that in the comments. How many animals did Moses have on the ark? All right, now, um, the... Uh, oh, okay. Jesus also affirmed in the authority, the reliability, and the importance of every single word of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, you can look at the, the ministry and the life of Jesus, and I won't take you through all those instances, but Jesus attested to the fact that all the scriptures pointed to him. And in Jesus' day, the scriptures are Genesis through Malachi, the first 39 books of the Bible, all the Old Testament, what the Hebrews call, what the Jewish people today still call the Tanakh, the the Old Testament. So Jesus believed the Bible. He believed all of it. He even believed the hard parts. And that matters because of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's ultimate prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say that in the past, God spoke through the prophets. But nowadays, in this present age, today, he is, God has spoken through his son. Jesus is the ultimate prophet prophet. Jesus also claimed to have all authority in heaven and on earth. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when when the man who came back from the dead, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and whom all the scriptures point to, pronounces a story as true, we believe it. Now remember, you've stepped into the Christian worldview here. Okay, so as a Christian, it makes perfectly good sense to agree with Jesus our King, our Redeemer, our Savior, and to say, okay, Jesus believed him, I believe him too. Okay, now, let me just acknowledge for a second. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, uh, which is incredibly awesome, okay? Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every true follower of Jesus who has repented and trusted in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit living within. So I've got the Holy Spirit embodying me right now, okay, which is incredible. It's especially cool for me because this week, two of my kids, two of our kids repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and gave their lives to Jesus, which is so cool. So my, our, our six-year-old and our four-year-old 
repented and trusted in Jesus. So according to the Bible, they have the Holy Spirit living within them now, which is awesome. But I can tell you something about my four-year-old and my six-year-old. They don't have all their theology figured out. I know. It comes as a shock, especially if you know Lucas or if you know Fia. They come up with these zingers and it's like, man, who taught you that? I don't even think I taught you that. I think just God, just you have just a direct pipeline to God. And I think he taught you that. Well, guess what? As a follower of Christ, you do have a pipeline to God. In fact, my buddy Larry used to, when we would, uh, when I was a youth pastor and Larry was a youth leader, he would ask the, the guys this question, the guys in the youth group. He'd say, if you could call God up on your cell phone right now, if you had God's cell number and you could ask him any question, what would you ask him? And then what he would do is he would use that, that um, illustration to point out, you know what, we do have God's cell number. We can call him at any time. And if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you have God easily accessible at all times. Maybe that's why the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, because God's always listening. Okay, now that being said, we don't have our theology all worked out. So we can read the Bible and we can come to these hard sayings and these hard stories and we can go, man, oh Lord, I just don't know. I don't know what to do with these. I mean, these seem crazy. God, shape my mind. Help me to think your thoughts. Help me to think your way. Help me to submit myself to your way, your will, and your word. That's okay. If you have a, if you have a hard time with some of these stories, I want you to know that's okay. God still accepts you, but God's goal is not to leave you there because we're always being conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ in true righteousness and true holiness. And so what that means is we're going to act like Jesus and we're going to think like Jesus and we're going to believe like Jesus. And Jesus believed the Old Testament. So, uh, Joel, thanks for joining. Um, uh, how are you, don't you guys have a newborn? How are you watching right now with a newborn? Uh, but if the baby's watching, hello. Um, do you guys have a newborn? I'm tripping now. I think you do. All right. Now I'm feeling like a, a bad friend. Look, I, this is why I don't do interactions very well. Look, leave your comments and, um, so I've had so many friends have babies recently. It's crazy, which is awesome because most of them are followers of Jesus. Uh, actually, there's a family at the hospital who just recently had a new a new baby, and uh, it was it was cool. We were able to anyway. It's very cool. Babies are awesome. I love babies, and the world needs more babies. Frankly, um, it's after their babies then then things go. Uh, go south. But really, we all know, as if you're a good Calvinist, you understand that the problem happened long ago. And now I'm getting too far afield. So um, the third reason why it makes sense to, um, to believe in these so-called crazy stories is this, because it's, it's unnecessary not to. Oh, we just lost one viewer. Is that because I said Calvinist? It might be. That's okay. That's okay. We press on. So um, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary to call these stories outlandish. Why? Because calling the stories in the Bible outlandish or crazy presupposes that there is no God. It presupposes that God either doesn't exist or if he does exist, he couldn't make a donkey talk. Which, if you think about it, that's 
that in and of itself is kind of a crazy belief. Why would we assume that God couldn't make a donkey talk? Or why would we assume that there is no God? You know, here's David Hume's problem. And here's the problem with, with radical skepticism, with unbelief and with the enlightenment is that it, it, it takes the order and the structure and the, the faithfulness and the uniformitarianism of the world that is rightfully the birthright of the Christian worldview, because God is faithful and God has structured the world that way. And it tries to use it against the biblical worldview. So it goes like this. All right, look, without God, there is no reason to think that the world is ordered and structured and adheres to certain laws of science, of logic, language, mathematics, any of that stuff. Okay. With God, if we presuppose God, of course the world is going to have faithfulness and, and uniformitarianism, uniformity baked in, because that's how God is. The Bible says, I, the Lord, do not change. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, of course, the, from a Christian worldview, yeah, things are going are gonna to remain steadfast and steady and, and reliable. Without God, there's no reason to presuppose any of that. The problem with radical skepticism, and I'm going to say radical because it's inconsistent. It's actually very illogical. It says this, I want to presuppose that the world ought to be steady and faithful and, and steadfast and that the future will be like the past and that I can make sense of the present. But I don't want any of that God stuff that makes all that possible. I don't want there to be a mind behind the universe that is keeping everything in line, that's, that's grounding the laws of logic and the laws of science and the laws of the physical world. I don't want God, but I want all of his benefits. Okay, that taking that step is completely unnecessary. See, if you deny God, your problem is much bigger than a talking donkey because now you've got to account for a universe of reason, of uniformity, of consistency and a faithfulness without a God who makes all those things possible, who has those things baked into his, his very nature. I shouldn't say baked in because God wasn't baked, God wasn't created, but they're part of God's nature. And so you've got to account for a universe that has all the consistency of a Christian universe, of a universe caused by God without God. Good luck. I mean, now you're talking, the whole history of Western philosophy, I mean, you can go back, go back to the 500 BC and the ancient Greeks, the first Greek um, philosophers wrestled with this problem of how do we explain the universe? And, and uh, some said all is water and somebody else said all is fire and somebody else said all is change. Somebody else said all is gods. Everything, is, everything has a little God or a little mind in it thinking like that, um, you don't get past square one. And modern man doesn't get past square one either. Because what we're left with is, an, is a universe that is completely uncaused, a universe that is guided uh, by an unguided process. It, all the design, all of the, um, the consistency and the clear teleology that we see, the clear um, teleology mean things are, are, are aimed at a goal. I mean, the mind is so clearly designed to think and to process truth. I mean, David Hume had an incredible mind, and yet he used that mind ultimately to deny 
his own rationality and his own thinking. He didn't get all the way there. We didn't get all the way there until uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who denied the possibility of really any knowledge whatsoever. But without God, there's no reason to have any kind of conclusion whatsoever about the world. And so this idea that there are some things that are reasonable to believe and some things that aren't reasonable, there's just no basis for that. Because to believe that the world is a rational, reasonable place in the first place, you have to already presuppose that God is there and that the Bible is true. Because it's the Bible, it's in the Bible that we encounter God. So um, Eileen Heisey, Mrs. Heisey, uh, as I know her, because I've known her since I was in kindergarten, maybe, first grade, um, um, our, our old neighbor and, and just longtime family friend, um, she says, the changes in the disciples' lives after the resurrection provide evidence of the veracity of their accounts. Amen. These are people who did not have within their worldview an, an expectation that their Messiah was going to rise from the dead. Not until the end of the world. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the end of the world did not happen. And so they could not accept that. And it, this is why everybody ran and hid and abandoned Jesus. And, and were, they were cowering in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them. Why? Because they didn't expect it. And yet these men, the 12 men, uh, minus Judas, but plus Paul and plus Matthias, they all were tortured and all of them except for John were killed for their belief that they saw arisen Jesus. And so, yes, absolutely right. Their, their lives were completely changed. Peter went from being um, uh, someone who flew off the handle and someone who denied Jesus to being someone who died for Jesus, who was crucified upside down for Jesus. John went from being one of the sons of thunder, trying to call down fire on uh, those who don't believe, to being the apostle of love and being incredibly gentle and being incredibly... So, okay. All this to say, the lives of Jesus' apostles and Jesus' disciples were absolutely incredibly changed. And by the way, Jesus is still changing lives to this day. And if you don't know him, he will change your life too when you repent and trust in him. And believe me, it is hell without him. And I mean that in the absolute most literal sense. Because the same Bible that has the basis for believing in rationality. And the same Bible that has all these stories that we have no good reason not to believe is the same Bible that says that there is only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, taking the penalty for everyone who would ever believe in him. And that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, but everyone who rejects Jesus, who rejects God, who never repents, who never turns and, and bows the knee, to Jesus Christ, will take the punishment of their sins that they are rightfully owed. And my friends, you and I, we are owed death. We are owed hell. We have rebelled against God. And so the same Bible that, that has all of these incredible stories tells the, the true story of how to be made right with God. And it's not through anything that we do. It's definitely not through our own rationality. It's not through our own good works. It's not through having our theology all figured out. It's through coming to Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on the cross and accomplished the greatest miracle and the most fantastical true story of all human history and rose from the dead. So where does this leave us? Okay, now, the Bible gives every good possible reason for believing all of its stories. 
that means that when we read the Bible, do we have to now step back? Do we have to abandon our reason? Do we have to abandon our critical thinking? Do we now have to just say, well, I live in a world where donkeys talk. And, and then every donkey we go up to, uh, we just expect, well, I wonder, if is this one going to talk to me? I, hey, you know, donkey, I know you can talk to me. You know, I know you can. Should I be listening for, for my dog or my fish to start randomly talking to me? No, of course not. This is the point. Look, when you become a Christian, you don't, you don't step into a world where donkeys randomly talk or where snakes randomly talk or animals randomly start marching two by two. There's a reason we call these things miracles. It's because they are God bending the laws of nature in order to accomplish something radical to fulfill a promise. The miracles are there to authenticate God. Not to authenticate that we live in some crazy world, not to de-authenticate God, the God of reason, the God of rationality, the God of consistency and faithfulness, and the God of science who makes science possible, not to debunk all those things, but to show that the very same God who provides the basis for those things can bend his own laws in order to accomplish something amazing. So when God wants to part the Red Sea, so that his people can be set free from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Shout out to Jeff, uh, Dan, and Steve. If you guys are watching this, great video on slavery in the Bible. So, of course, the, the paradigm for slavery goes back to Israel in Egypt and God setting Israel free from their slavery. And he did that by parting a giant sea and letting them walk across. Look, my Bible tells me that happens. That's incredible, that, but it's not unbelievable. That's amazing, but it's true, and I can believe it. What that means is that I can take full confidence in knowing that God is the kind of God who I can trust to keep my tomorrows secure because he keeps his promises, because he's faithful. But he's also the God who can move heaven and earth to find his lost sheep. He's the same God who can bend what is even possible for our minds to understand. Step down into the human history, the cosmos that he created, become one of us and taste death and then conquer death, rise from the dead. If that's not an unbelievable story, I don't know what is. And yet it's just as true as Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, um, so, so this is where we're left. We're left with every reason to believe the incredible stories. And if you ask me, that just makes life more fun. I mean, I get to read the Bible and go, wow, cool. This stuff actually happened. That's amazing. God is so cool. And I can believe that without going out to the nearest farm and trying to get the farm animals to talk to me. That would be a sign of being imbalanced. Look, when Balaam's donkey talked to him, he was shocked. Okay, when Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles were shocked. That kind of stuff doesn't happen, but it does happen when God wants it to happen. And that is the point. God is in control. God is in charge. Not David Hume, not Immanuel Kant, not Joel said a case. Thank God he is in charge. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Greg Wilson says, creation by chance DNA happened by chance, much more incredulous than a talking donkey or 
Snake, DS, uh, C.S. Lewis, Dogma and the Universe. Man, amen. That's right. It takes uh, Frank Turek, I think, says, who's an apologist and an author. He says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Man, amen. It, I don't know how you account for DNA. I mean, you can't. You just can't. So, um, so Christians, my fellow believers, open up your Bible and read it with confidence. Not because I told you to, but because Jesus tells you to. All I'm doing is agreeing with Jesus. You can I, take everything that I say, and I want you to submit it to the razor of Scripture. See if what I'm saying is actually true. Not because I've got some great clever argument, but because the Bible says so. And, and without the Bible, you don't have a basis for any other belief. You just don't. Ben, thanks for joining, man. Glad to see you watching. Um, I hope the new digs are working out well for you guys. It's been a while, what, a couple months now since you moved. Um, three, four months, is that right? But I hope things are working out well for you guys and the kiddos. Um, that about wraps it up for me. Um, if you want to get more from me, here's how to get in touch. Here's how to follow my stuff. So if you have not yet liked the Think Institute, it's at Think Institute without the E. It's at Think Institute without the E. Go to my page. I'm on Facebook. You're watching from it right now, so you know how to find it. And um, please like it. Please um, feel free to rate. If this was beneficial, you know, give a five-star rating. And, and what that does is that kind of adds credibility and trustworthiness to some of the things that I'm saying um, as people might be browsing different pages and, and checking it out. But, um, but we, we, we want to get the gospel out. And we want to make, make it so that no believer who interacts with our material gets caught flat-footed, gets caught off guard when someone asks them about the hope that they have in Jesus. And if you're a non-Christian watching this, and I know we have non-Christians that watch, uh, some of you are my friends, I sincerely hope that this has challenged you to rethink some of your conclusions and some of your assumptions about God and about the Bible. And if you had been approaching the Bible saying, you know what, it's really a book of fairy tales and maybe some good moral teaching, I hope that this challenged that belief. And my ultimate hope is that you would come not only to think of the Bible as a great book, but to read about and to meet and to encounter the Messiah that the Bible is all about. And that's Jesus Christ. So um, hope this was helpful. You can follow me on Twitter at Joel Setacase. You, uh, I've got a public page on Facebook, but I'm not really posting to that anymore. I'm on Instagram, Joel at Joel Setacase or at Joel M. Setacase, one of the two. And um, feel free to connect, joel.setacase at crew.org if you want to get in touch via email. And um, very soon I'm going to start doing live teachings in churches. I've, got, I've been talking with a couple of churches, a couple of congregations. We're going to be doing live teachings. Oh, and May 5th, if you're in Chicago, if you're on the northwest side of Chicago, now this is for men, men only, we're going to do something that I'm calling the Think Tank. Uh, if you know me, in the past, I've done Cigars and Bible. I've done Pub Theology, Pub Forum. Um, I did uh, Ask a Pastor, Northwest. But we're going to be doing the Think Tank, and that's going um, to be happening on May 5th on the Northwest side of Chicago. Go to the event. It's right there on the Think Institute page. Mark Zanders, thanks for watching. Jerry, thanks for watching. Appreciate you guys. And signing off, I hope this made you think. Take care.